The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you for taking the time to be here this evening. It's a warm, muggy evening, and I know that uh, you could have been elsewhere, and you may have been worried about having to swim home uh, in case there were another flood here, so... It's good to see you all here tonight. Before I begin, let me just offer a word of prayer. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Although this is really a lecture series, a Wednesday evening uh, lecture series, We are uh, seeking to root everything that we say in God's Word, and so I do want to begin with a reading, a short reading from God's Word tonight, from Romans chapter 13, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, Romans 13, 1 through 5, the relevance of this passage uh, should become clear as uh, we proceed this evening. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers or governmental authorities, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whatsoever therefore, whosoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves condemnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Will you then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and you shall have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to you for good. But if you do that which is evil, be afraid, for he bears not the sword in vain." For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that does evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Our subject this evening is to understand something of the relation between Uh, church or religion and the state and to ask in what sense they are related and whether or not they can be separate. Now it has been argued that AD 451 is one of the most important dates in all history. It's the Council of Chalcedon. It's been suggested that it established the Christian foundation of Western culture and made possible the development of liberty in the West. That Chalcedon, the Council of Chalcedon, handed statism its major defeat in human history. The uh, church historian Roland Bainton sees Chalcedon as critical to the building of Western civilization. This is what he says. The creed of Chalcedon affirmed the full deity and the full humanity of Christ in two natures. The church, which in the East did so much to disintegrate the empire, in the West became the builder 
of Christendom, which, however attenuated, still survives as Western civilization, end quote. Now, Bainton points out that when the barbarians invaded the West, by the way, barbarian simply means rootless one, rootless one, when they invaded the West and the Roman Empire's government collapsed, he suggests the church stepped in to assume many of the functions of government. The great task was to convert the barbarians to Orthodox Christianity. The process of their education and civilization also fell to the church. End quote. So Orthodox Christianity recognized that Jesus Christ was both God and King. That means he was fully man and fully God. And this led to, in the West, the flourishing of a free church that was able to assume godly responsibility in numerous areas of social and civil life. And from here on, church and state, in a variety of different ways, saw themselves as intimately related under God. I'm not suggesting we always got it right or that it's always been right, but they've always since seen themselves as in some way related under God. So in what way did the verdict of the Council of Chalcedon help create a vision of freedom beyond the state? Firstly, we have to understand something about pagan philosophy if we're going to understand the difference that Christianity made. Pagan philosophy was essentially statist. The state was inescapably religious because the state was priestly and saving. That is, it substituted God. It saw the state, substituting God, it saw the state as the incarnation or the locus, the center of divinity in history. Statism basically means the idea that a, the, the state or the differentiated public that we call the state swallows gradually all lesser institutions and governs, controls, and regulates them. Now, this had been the view of all the great ancient realms, the Egyptian realm, the Babylonian, the Persian, the Greek, and Roman empires, where rulers were viewed and worshipped as gods. And we see this, actually, throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament. We see the pharaohs of Egypt. They were considered sons of the sun god. They were priests in the temporal order of Egyptian power. And this was also the fundamental assumption of all variations of Moloch worship or Molech worship, which simply means king, in the Old Testament, where there was a kind of philosophical chain of being at work in people's minds where the differences between gods and human beings were of essentially degree but not in kind. Salvation was achieved when you were deified. Salvation wasn't by grace. It was steadily by the dream of, the hope of, in paganism, becoming a god. So in this view, people actually graduated steadily to the status of gods. And so it was inevitable for non-Christian philosophy to view the state, the state being man-enlarged, as the central institution and highest point of history, that in some way manifest divinity in the body politic, in the rulers, or in their offices. And this was basically the substructure of all pagan statism. 
Now this meant that the issue for the church for the first few centuries of the Christian church was very literally the question of Christ or Caesar. Very literally, it was a choice between Christ or Caesar. And these facts came to very vivid expression in the first century when the Roman emperor, Augustus Caesar, declared himself to be the savior of the world. And this is the declaration that his government issued. And I'm quoting now. Salvation is to be found in none other save Augustus. And there is no other name given to men in which they can be saved. It's noteworthy that Christianity's radical descent from this was seen by the Roman state not as a religious offense, but as a political offense. St. Peter's rebuttal was very explicit in Acts 4.12. I hope you recognize. I hope those words sounded familiar to you in some way because Peter says in Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus. This was not only a declaration of Christ as Savior, It was a resistance to a particular view of the state as lord or sovereign over man. Was the state God incarnate or was the state to be under God? Both views associated religion and the state, but in different ways. Now this specific conflict which confronted the early church concerning the claims of the state and its limits is no less real today in modern times. In fact, in an article reflecting on the alleged failures of the American government to prevent the terrorist attacks of September 11th in 2001, the Harvard professor and former leader of the Liberal Party in Canada, Michael Ignatieff, ominously articulates the modern concept of sovereignty. This is what he says. A sovereign is a state with a monopoly on the means of force. It is the object of ultimate allegiance and the source of law. End quote. The state is the source of sovereignty, it's the object of ultimate allegiance, and it is the source of law. Now, there's no essential difference between that understanding of the state and the ancient pagan Roman understanding of the state That was being declared concerning Caesar. And this is precisely the nature of the theological conflict causing the political persecution of the exploding unofficial church in China today. China is a government which shares Ignatius' view of the state. One BBC commentator has actually grasped the essence of the issue in China well. This is what Tim Gardam Uh, says, writing for the BBC. He says, after the communist victory in 1948, missionaries were expelled. This is China he's talking about. But Christianity was permitted in state-sanctioned churches so long as they gave primary allegiance to the Communist Party. Mao, on the other hand, described religion as poison 
and the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s and 70s attempted to eradicate it. Driven underground, Christianity not only survived, but with its own Chinese martyrs, it grew in strength. Since the 1980s, when religious belief was again permitted, the official, official churches gradually created more space for themselves. They report to the state administration for religious affairs. They are forbidden to take part in any religious activity outside their places of worship and sign up to the slogan, love the country, love your religion. In return, in, in return the party promotes atheism in schools but undertakes to protect and respect religion until such a time as religion itself will disappear. What the authorities consider non-negotiable is the house church's refusal to acknowledge any official authority over their organization. End quote. That's the political issue of the persecuted church in China. It's the same issue as the early church. It's the same issue increasingly confronting us today. Despite this opposition, armed with a principle of freedom under God from the Scriptures, Chinese Christians today continue to grow and worship Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Christ, not the state, is seen as the ultimate source of allegiance and sovereign source of law. And today in China, there are Worshipping Christ on a Sunday in China, more Christians than in all of Europe put together. Conservatively, 60 million, I've been told that's way too low. It's more like 100 million in China today. So the issue for the church in the first century, as now, was one of lordship and sovereignty. And so we have to answer the similar questions today. Whose right is it to rule? Is the church free or under an Erastian order? Erastian order means the complete control of church by the state. Can the state be religiously neutral? Is Christ the object of primary allegiance or is man enlarged, the state, to be assigned a role that supersedes that of God the Son? This is increasingly the question confronting not just the Chinese church, but the church in the West. Now, going back for a moment to the Council of Chalcedon, which met in uh, 451 AD, they met to deal with a point of Christology, that is, the doctrine of Christ. And it was a theological problem primarily, and it was pastoral in character, but it would have a tremendous bearing on the future of the Western world. First, they upheld the orthodox understanding of Christ's full humanity and his full deity. But they further clarified that this union of the two natures of humanity and deity was without confusion. So the human and the divine didn't blend. Without change, without division, without separation. Now, this didn't create two persons, but preserved the unity of Christ's person, which brought together two natures in the incarnation. 
Now, it was probably not the council's major concern at the time, nor did they likely appreciate the full significance of their work. But the indirect result of their formulation of the doctrine of Christ was that the Christian faith could in no way be melded with paganism or anti-Christianity because it meant that the natural man does not ascend to the divine or the supernatural. He doesn't ever blend with the divine. Remember I mentioned at the beginning that the pagan religion saw man as graduating to divinity, to becoming a god. This uh, statement ruled this possibility out. The bridge was gulf between humanity and divinity only by revelation and by the incarnation of the God-man, the great and the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Salvation, then, is not of man, and it cannot be by means of his politics, which is the way human beings had thought of salvation. It was essentially a political uh, accomplishment. This meant further that Chalcedon, the Council of Chalcedon, effectively barred human institutions from professing to be incarnations of the deity, of somehow incarnating the divine in the world, somehow uniting the human and the divine in their existence. That is, if the state or any other institution could be conceived of as an imminent divine human order, then there was no possible appeal be above or beyond the state. It is the final order, and man is simply a political and social animal, as the Greek philosophers held. So, if God could somehow be incarnated in a human institution, then how could you appeal above or beyond that institution? You can't, can you? Because it represents on the earth that is imminent, an imminent divine authority. It cannot be challenged. However, the problem for paganism was that if we're defined by the body politic, what happens to liberty? And the reality is that liberty in the ancient world was practically non-existent. Permission from the state to exercise certain area or areas of activities could exist, but there was no liberty apart from and beyond the state that was grounded in man's creation by God. Now, we're facing this problem today. It just occurs to me that the way in which we're experiencing this now is that we find that we can no longer appeal to God and to our creation in the image of God in our culture to define marriage. Because the body politic, the state, in usurping the prerogatives of God, has said, we can redefine that social institution as we see fit. Law and life are then defined by government statute. The governance of society is then reduced to an aspect of state social policy. That is to say, with no God and no divine law that transcends the state, there is no appeal beyond it. And therefore, it is the state and not God who is now sovereign and Lord. And so wherever the state denies God, it has de facto established itself as the divine per se. That is a replacement divinity. An inescapably religious order, and then increasingly a saving or a redemptive institution. 
For the Chalcedon Council, Jesus Christ, however, was not a divinized man, as the pagans held. Man could somehow be divinized. That is, he wasn't an ordinary man who is lent divinity or ascends to divinity. Nor are people and institutions divinized through Christ. When you become a Christian, the Bible says you're made a partaker of the divine nature. That doesn't mean you become a part of God. You don't become literally a piece of God. God shares himself with you, but rather it's through revelation and incarnation, the man Jesus Christ is made our sanctification and our redemption, and we participate in his perfect humanity, not his divine essence. That's why he's called the second Adam. So we participate in his humanity. Now this closed the door, not only on statism, that swallowing of all these other institutions under the total sovereignty, law, and regulation of the state, but it also closed the door on the Eastern patriarch's claim that the church was somehow the incarnation of the divine, presiding over the visible kingdom on the earth. It meant that God's reign is not mediated by people and their institutions ultimately, but by Christ alone. And all authority and power must serve him as his diaconate, as his minister, as his servants, submitting to the word of God. So the implications of Chalcedonian Christology militate against both ancient and modern statism as well as ecclesiocracy, that is the rule of the church over the state, as though the clergy are to run the affairs of the state. Jesus Christ declared that in him is true freedom. And so what was provided here in this understanding of who Christ is was a principle of freedom that did not exist previously in the ancient world outside of the Hebrew nation. Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That wasn't just a spiritual thing. If we apply our understanding of who Christ is, freedom follows. We're no longer slaves to sin and the sinful structures that men use to lord it over others. We can make our appeal directly to God. For only when individuals and communities recognize a transcendent authority beyond them is freedom actually possible. Now, in the modern era, the reemergence of statism with the French Revolution, that was with Rousseau's social contract and Hegelian politics of power, probably the most influential uh, philosopher for the modern state was Hegel, who said the state is the divine idea as it exists on earth. This is significant. This re-emergence of statism today is expressed in its efforts not merely to ignore but to progressively deny the right of the church to any independent existence. Now, this is happening all around us. There is the continuous threat to the tax exemption of the church. There is the continuous restriction of the church's uh, right to speak to any public issues. If you've been following the news during Wimbledon, a Christian man there, I think, working with a, um, an evangelistic organization, who was speaking on the street during Wimbledon in the Wimbledon area, was arrested 
by the police. Get in the street, carted off to jail, put in a cell, because somebody was offended that he was speaking from 1 Thessalonians about sexual immorality. And he wasn't a ranter either. He was carted off to prison. This is in London, England. The key problem that we face today as Christians with modern concepts of freedom, you see, is that they are political and not theological. They're political definitions, not theological ones. When liberty is defined politically and not theologically, freedom is destroyed because non-Christian thought is dialectical. And by that, I mean it's trying to unite two opposing ideas, that of nature and that of freedom, that of determination in nature, and that of choice. And it doesn't have the resources to keep the social order from collapsing either into tyranny or anarchy. Essentially, the question for dialectical culture is how to have both unity in the social order and diversity without collapsing into either a tyrannical order in which the state regulates absolutely everything, practically, or descending into the unrelated anarchistic approach of some cultures, which we're seeing right now in actually a number of parts of the world, where things start to descend into anarchy. Now, to solve this, the vision of the so-called Enlightenment, and don't forget it was humanists who gave this period its name, the Christian era is the Dark Ages, and then when Greek philosophy is recovered, it's the Enlightenment, They posited, their answer was to posit the state as a social contract between autonomous human beings, people who are a law unto themselves, these individuals with choice, coming together and making a social contract between each other. And in order to prevent the breakdown of the social order under the pressures of this autonomous thought and man's ethical creativity, The state was necessarily here emphasized more and more in an effort to retain unity in a world where God and his law were vanishing into irrelevance. The French Revolution led to the reign of terror, of course, and ended in the Napoleonic dictatorship. It it, uh, imploded. For the Christian, however, the socio-political application of Chalcedon produces the mindset of a biblical libertarian. Because we see the reign of God, his sovereignty and salvation and law as the source of human liberty. And every other alternative is tyranny and slavery. Since instead of gaining a utopia, which is what is promised when you abolish God and his law, people instead, by their lawlessness, become victims of their own depravity. The Christian's life and self-realization is not comprehended by the state, but by the triune God and him alone. Liberty, then, can actually only re-emerge as the state's pagan claims to total authority are actually resisted by Christians, and a renaissance of biblical faithfulness takes place where the state is progressively reduced to its scriptural role as a ministry of justice and its jurisdiction emphatically limited, as it used to be the case in the West. As one social historian has written, is God or the state man's savior? 
The answer of Chalcedon is emphatically for God and liberty. Western liberty began when the claim of the state to be man's savior was denied. The state then, according to Scripture, was made the ministry of justice. But wherever Christ ceases to be man's savior, their liberty perishes as the state again asserts its messianic claims, end quote. Now, there can be little doubt that we see this correlation in Western culture today where more and more regulations, controls, and agencies and laws seek to save man from himself and steadily make us slaves, stripping the family, the church, and private organizations and enterprises of freedom and liberty. If you have a job, most of you work six months a year for the state. We don't often think about that. But six months of your year, if you add all your taxes together, inheritance tax is a new idea in the West, income tax is a new idea in the West, property tax is a new idea in the West in the last 100, 150 years, you spend six months of your year working for a faceless bureaucracy. And even then the roads are filled with potholes. The primary satanic strategy against God's reign is and always has been man's self-deification reflected in the initial temptation of Satan in Genesis 3, 5, to be as God. And this finds its most fertile expression when humanity puts forth this collective effort to establish a humanistic order in rebellion against God that seeks to join heaven and earth by usurping God's prerogatives, and recreate paradise in terms of man's word and social planning. And the reason the, you work for the state for so much of the year is it needs money to create this social paradise. And you're going to pay for it. This was the dream of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, and has been repeated in history right down to the present, where now a global elitist oligarchy in league with modern socialistic and interventionist states, is dreaming and planning the development of their world bank, their world currency, their world tax structures, and what modern politicians unabashedly and unashamedly and openly call the new world order, establishing the equalitarian religion of paganism. If you don't believe me, go and read some of the founding and foundational documents of UNESCO and various other UN organizations. EICC will happily provide you with the references. But for the believer, the Christian, no other ultimate sovereign than God is acceptable, and no ultimate law order admissible to command our obedience when it contradicts what God requires of us. Now, how has this impacted the church? Well, in this calling to, to a persistent resistance to statism as a religious fact of our time, the reformed and biblical mindset finds itself very much in an intractable conflict with a lot of contemporary Christianity that favors either a passive resignation to the powers of the religious priestly state today, whatever their morality, or it favors the full use of the coercive state to enforce 
a particular vision of social justice. This is how the church has tended to respond to the question of statism. In each case, there is actually an implicit acquiescence to the statist agenda. One missiologist, Johann Verkul, suggests, I quote, the church reflects her Lord more accurately when she is oppressed than when she dominates, end quote. Now, it's very clear that Christ is the servant king. He suffers at the cross, at the hands of sinful people. We also should notice, however, that Jesus isn't still on the cross. According to Scripture, he's been raised in glory far above all power and dominion in this age with all authority in heaven and earth in his hands. Christians do and will suffer for his sake. But our sufferings, whilst meaningful and significant, are not propitiatory, nor are they redemptive. They are a byproduct of being identified with Christ and sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Suffering, persecution, and marginalization are not things that we are to seek out as though they are intrinsically valuable and virtuous or even vicarious, as some Christians seem to think. Rather, in the midst of persecution, we're promised victory. This is because the cross of Christ meant not defeat, but victory, life, and liberty for all who surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, for our evangelical forebears, like the Puritans, who are a particular interest of mine, since Christ is both life, life and liberty, we are to pursue a life of freedom under God. And we have a responsibility to pursue a life of freedom under God. It's not enough to passively acquiesce to enslavement, but we're to actively pursue a life of freedom. And this begins with self-discipline. Many people prefer modern slavery because it frees them of their sense of responsibility. And others prefer to live off the proceeds of other people's responsibility so that they can live irresponsibly. Life begins then with self-discipline, not an anarchistic rejection of God's law, nor an appeal to state coercion. So Alan Carden has written, and I quote, Puritan political philosophy and theology reflect a belief in an absolute standard, a fundamental law of right and wrong as spelled out in the Bible, a belief in the paramount importance of right conduct and a high degree of awareness of the existence of evil and human failure. Because of these views, two things were unthinkable. Toleration of heresy, an absolute authority wielded by anyone less than God himself. Now, at the same time, although the biblical mind, which I think is reflected in Puritan thought, prioritized liberty, freedom, and self-discipline being opposed to statism, they were not opposed to civil government or Christian engagement with politics. So when we speak about the dangers of statism, we are not speaking about disengagement from the political sphere. On the contrary, evangelicals historically regarded the government of men as one of the highest vocations. That's why we called them ministers. We have a prime minister. 
And they are MPs. They are ministers. Well, ministers of what? Servants. What terrified the Puritans, as should indeed terrify us, however, was the idea of consolidating all authority and power in the hands of any man or institution. So they wanted to uh, separate powers, divide power. This was the idea behind behind the American experiment. Since man is a sinner and only Jesus Christ, the true Lord and Savior of man, the Puritans did not share the confidence of our century that social cohesion depends on governmental structures. Rather, the civil government, rather than, sorry, civil government interfering with, dominating, and regulating every aspect of people's lives, as though subjects are slave wards of state, which we call the nanny state today. I don't know how you uh, find when you're driving along the 401 the perpetual announcements on how to drive, how to tie your shoelaces, and so on and so forth. But people talk today about the nanny state, when it encroaches increasingly into every aspect of life, treating us as children. Rather than this invasion, magistrates, they said, as well as ministers, were called to be servants of God and the people. And this didn't diminish the role, the important role of civil government in God's economy, Because church, family, and state were seen as partners in creating a Christian commonwealth. They were partners in creating a Christian commonwealth. Contrary to myth, the Reformers and the Puritans did not believe in ecclesiocracy. With all aspects of civil society being dominated by church and clergy. Rather, church and state were to be distinct spheres with distinct jurisdictions under God with the church enjoying freedom from state interference, and vice versa. Not only were church and state not to be antagonistic, they were to mutually support and reinforce each other. Let me give you an example. In New England in 1646, Puritan ministers summarized their view of an ideal relationship between church and civil government. This is what they said. Quote, The church's desire... The magistrate commands. Churches act in way of liberty. The magistrate in way of authority. Moses and Aaron should go together and kiss one another in the mount of God. Moses and Aaron, the priestly and the judicial, go together and kiss one another in the mount of God. There was to be a complementary and not competitive relationship between the two where the church ministers the word and the civil authority, as Paul says in Romans 13, bears the sword, both submitting themselves to the authority of God and his word. Thus the state was to be God's servant, as Paul puts it. God's servant. And any political order that refused to be such was a tyranny and must be resisted wherever it contravened God's law. Now this Puritan view continued amongst Christians, many Christians anyway, well into the 19th century in the United States and Canada, even into the 20th century here in Canada. The noted 19th century minister and professor of theology, James M. Wilson, in his detailed exposition of our passage, Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, which he entitled, The Establishment and Limits of Civil Government, sets out this view 
of civil government. This is a rather long quote, but I would just encourage you to concentrate and hear what he's trying to say. I know it's hot. He says this, Paul here styles them ministers of God, God's servants. The servant should know his master even among men. And still more, he who professes to wield an authority derived from God in administering an ordinance of God, acknowledge, reverence, and give due homage to his sovereign. This acknowledgement should be practical. It does not consist in mere profession of belief in his being or even his providence. It implies the study of his will and a constant aim and effort to please him. The ruler or the nation that claims to be above all other authority demanding an unquestioning obedience to mere human law that denies the existence of a higher law is in rebellion against God, is not a servant in Paul's sense. And more than this, the acknowledgement must be direct and in express terms it must be an acknowledgement of the supremacy of the Most High, of His laws as the Scripture teaches them. Further still, this acknowledgement must be rendered not to the God of the deist, but to the only true God, the Christian's God, to God in Christ. Does the refusal to acknowledge God invalidate the authority of a government as tyranny does? Why not? Surely if God has ordained this institution for His glory, if He has put it under His law, if He has designed, designed to exhibit in it something of His majesty, it is difficult to see how a government that denies their Maker and Lord of all or withholds from Him, from His law and from His Son, even an acknowledgement can claim His sanction upon its acts. End quote. That's an incredibly powerful statement. You'll recall that it was some months back now that in the support for gay marriage, President Obama cited Jesus and the Golden Rule to appeal to the American public. Claiming God's sanction whilst denying the very substance of God's Word. Now here in Canada, this evangelical view of Western civilization was still dominant in the early part of the 20th century. And this is going to surprise you, I think. During a debate over the Lord's Day bill in the Canadian Senate on July 9th, 1906, the liberal senator, this is the liberal senator, James McMullen of North Wellington, Ontario, said this. I'm quoting. We must not forget that we claim to be a Christian nation. We are a Christian professing nation at least. And as such, we should respect the laws of God. We generally make our laws in accordance with the provisions of God's law. His law says, thou shalt not kill. And our law says that, man, that the man that sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. God's law says, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And our law says that a man who is guilty of perjury is liable to be punished and imprisoned for a violation of the law. We confirm all these commandments by legislation. Why do we not confirm that commandment which says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? We are responsible to a higher authority. 
The responsibility is that we should recognize God's law that is established and published in His own word. End quote. The Canadian Senate. Could you imagine a speech coming out of the Canadian Senate like that today? It's significant that in this statement to the Canadian Senate, the then common conviction was set out that as a people, we, that's including the state, because the state is just the differentiated public, are accountable to God for adherence both to the first and second table of the law. That is, for offenses against God as well as men. And that's why we had blasphemy laws in Canada. It was likewise believed that there would be real and serious national consequences for a failure to obey God's law in these regards. This was not a fringe opinion amongst Canadian political leaders. In fact, during the same series of debates on July 11th, another liberal senator, William Ross of Halifax, said this, and I quote, Now the individual or the family, the community, province or the dominion, which observes the Sabbath day as it should be observed, is one that will prosper. And if we are to enter upon, enter upon the downgrade by setting at defiance the fourth commandment, we will go down as a nation by doing so. End quote. Now these powerful statements of biblical faith, both by theologians there about Romans 13, and politicians from Canada are in stark contrast to some of the vague assertions and, I think, theological cowardice of much contemporary Christian political theory. For example, in expounding Romans 13 in relation to the role of the state, one popular theologian, John Howard Yoder, exemplifies the approach of passive acquiescence in church-state relations, arguing that, and I quote, the whole point of the passage, Romans 13, was to take out of their minds, that's the Jewish Christians in Rome, any conception of rebellion against or even emotional rejection of a, this corrupt pagan government. End quote. Indeed, he argues for a radical subordination to whatever powers there be, while somewhat inconsistently agreeing that this must not constitute obedience to requirements of violence or killing. So, in rejecting a reformed view that Scripture sets out a godly social order for which we should strive and labor, even in the face of opposition, Yoder argues that Scripture calls for, and I quote again, a non-resistant attitude toward tyrannical government. So how does one determine, according to Yoder, what is due to the tyranny of Caesar? In rather abstract and vague language, Yoda says this is judged by, quote, whether what he claims is due to him is part of the obligation to love. Love, in turn, is defined by the fact that it does no harm. Well, Yoda's pseudo-utilitarianism, that is a kind of moral arithmetic where you're supposed to work out what's doing harm and what isn't, which everybody, of course, will disagree about, is summed up with an incredible conclusion that instructs Christians to be, quote, non-resistant in all their relationships, including the social. 
In fact, according to Yoda, Scripture calls Christians to be subject to the historical process in which the sword continues to be wielded to bring about a kind of order under fire. And so we have here a kind of romantic, pacifist ideal that sees every state as a sort of permissive providence of God where in an impersonal historical process, the state is not even to be resisted emotionally. So don't even get upset about tyranny. Whilst measuring, he says, good and evil, what's loving and unloving, in terms of what does no harm. Now I put it to you that this is pure humanism. By contrast, Scripture tells us that all of history... All its empires, all its kings, all its governments and their fortunes are the product of God's active justice to bless or curse, judge or elevate peoples and nations in terms of righteousness as defined by his law. And this is clear in numerous passages throughout the Bible. Amos 1 and 2, Psalm 2, Isaiah 50, uh, uh, 26, Proverbs 14:34, which I think says, Righteousness exalts a nation. God's law in Scripture is the very definition of what it is to be loving towards a neighbor. And so anything that militates against God must be unloving and harmful, and therefore to be opposed and resisted. Because the Apostle Paul says, love is the fulfillment of the law. In our passage of Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Logically, Yoda's position, you see, leaves the Christian without a principle of liberty in history without a temporal appeal be above and beyond the state or a clear mandate to resist tyranny and injustice by word and deed. Such a view strikes me anyway as both unloving and lawless. The other extreme that's offered to us in the contemporary church is exemplified by uh, a missiologist named Andrew Kirk. Now, he's not willing to settle for the historical process like Yoda to take its course through a delinquent state. Instead, for Kirk, the mission of God demands that we use the godless and coercive state to redistribute wealth and enforce socialism. Kirk says uh, that, well, Kirk's neo-Marxism anyway, lends us the perspective that is essentially communistic. And it requires greatly expanded powers from what the state already has to greatly extend and expand those powers further in areas ranging from setting minimum and maximum salary levels, the coercive redistribution of people's holdings, steeply progressive taxation, and other restraints on human liberty. Never mind the Eighth Commandment, which says, Thou shalt not steal. Marxism, in fact communism for Kirk, is apparently more compassionate than any other system of government he can think of. And he says, quote, contains a strong element of hope. Marxism's crowning assertion is that communist society is the only place where man can find his own real humanity by discovering that of his neighbor, end quote. Now these men purport to be evangelical. This social salvation by government coercion is basic to contemporary religious statism. The Bible-centered 
Christian, however, is neither a retreatist pacifist, submissively ignoring the state as irrelevant, nor a neo-Marxist, using the state to control all areas of life. Rather, the Christian believes in the necessity of civil government, qualified by the biblical conviction that the state only has abiding legitimacy where it surrenders to its limited God-ordained role as a diaconate of justice in terms of God's authority. As soon as the state steps outside this sphere, it plays God. It usurps God's prerogatives. In such a case, it will inevitably persecute the family and the church, destroying localism and people's freedom to obey God, even to preach God's Word. By moving outside its God-ordained sphere, the state progressively destroys liberty as it asserts a messianic, that's a saving role for itself, in the centralized politics of power. And of course it must do. Because if you have denied salvation and sovereignty to God, that is simply transferred. Salvation is still required. It is simply transferred to the body politic, to the state. And the state must redeem you and save you from yourself and define life and death, marriage and all things else. In conclusion then, The choice before the early church is again the choice before the modern church. Christ or Caesar. And whilst the modern state has dropped most of its theological language concerning its role, its purported function, goals, and purpose are no different from those of the Roman imperial order. It's a thoroughly religious establishment that we have today. Thus, as early Christians discovered, for freedom to flourish and the kingdom of God to grow, the pretensions of statism have to be resisted. And eventually, the state, by faithfulness to God, reduced to biblical limits, not by political revolution, but by the power of the Holy Spirit that's manifest in the preaching of the gospel, in our obedience to God, in the new birth, in faith and repentance, leading to our personal obedience to God, our familial obedience to God, the church's obedience to God in every area of life. And as we do that and take our responsibilities, the state will be reduced. Biblically, the jurisdiction of church and state are different. They're not to be mixed. In that sense, we can speak about the separation of church and state. They have different responsibilities, different jurisdictions. But we cannot speak about the separation of God or Christianity as Christians from the state. It is true that the king could not serve as priest in the Old Testament. There was a separation of powers and vice versa. The king couldn't go into the temple and offer sacrifices. There was a separation there. But there is no disestablishment of religion from the state possible any more than it is possible for the state to be neutral with regard to morality and law. All law is the legislation of morality. And behind all morality is a source of sovereignty. And thereby, behind all sovereignty is a God concept. may not be the God of Scripture, but there is a God concept. It might be humanistic, pagan, Islamic, or Christian. If Christian faith 
and God's law ceases to govern the state, another worldview has been established in its place. It is impossible to be neutral. The question is only whether the state will endorse and establish idolatry or true worship, as Augustine said. Such a role for the state in preferring some values over others is in any era, whether it be ancient Rome or today, totally inescapable. Having set God's law aside, the state in Canada today nurtures, enforces, promotes, and indoctrinates in the schools secular, humanistic, and pagan religious values. No state can be impartial in these matters. A law order is going to inculcate values from some worldview or another, either with man and his agencies as sovereign or functioning as responsible and accountable to God. And I don't need to simply look to Christian theologians to support this. Law professors Rex Adar and Ian Lee, in their 2004 article for McGill Law Journal, entitled, Is Establishment Consistent with Religious Freedom?, made very clear that every country has some form of established religion. And I'm quoting, For a modern state to remain entirely impartial is, we submit, an impossible feat. The idea of a purely neutral state in which there is no official endorsement of the true and good of a political community that eschews the notion that it acts on the basis of substantive values is a mirage. The established position will inevitably exclude the worldviews of some citizens. End quote. For Adar and Lee, the implications of this are obvious. They say, there is, we contend, always an established or state orthodoxy. End quote. Always. The subsequent, the subsequent striking down of the Lord's Day Act in 1985, in our living memory, by the Supreme Court of Canada, and the advent of the Canadian Charter in 1982 were key markers plotting the demise of the Christian law order and the establishment of the new humanistic state orthodoxy. And things have sped up since then. We're living in the midst of it. In God's order, social liberty and Christ's dominion are one and the same thing. Social liberty and Christ's dominion are one and the same thing. The state is not God, for Christ alone is Lord. He alone links the human and the divine in himself, and that makes him alone the source of all sovereignty, all power, and all law, ultimately. As Christians, therefore, we must neither retreat from the task of bringing all things, including the state, into subjection to Christ by regeneration, nor must we delude ourselves into thinking with the so-called Christian Marxists that the state can itself bring about or incarnate the kingdom and justice of God. Our task remains, as we emerge from all the lessons of 20 centuries since the advent of Christ, is to apply God's word to every area of life and assert the crown rights of Christ till all spheres of life, including the state, is converted and faithfully submits to the lordship 
of Jesus. Now, it might well be asked, I can hear some of you asking already, in this historic task, how much are we to expect? How much success are we to expect in this calling in the medial time between Christ's first advent and His return? We hope, well, some Christians hope, that we have a good deal to expect. What hope do we have in history for this period we're living in now? Peter Lightheart, in his book, Defending Constantine, in his conclusion on this matter, is telling. He says this, Yoda thinks that the project of Christianizing the state is doomed. The time when that could happen has long ago passed away. If he is right, we are facing nothing short of apocalypse. I believe that here too Yoda is wrong and that we can escape apocalypse, but this can only happen on certain conditions. Only through re-evangelization. Only through the revival of a purified Constantinianism. Only by the reformation of a Christically centered politics. Only through fresh public confession that Jesus' city is the model city. His blood the only expiating blood, his sacrifice, the sacrifice that ends sacrifice. An apocalypse can be averted only if modern civilization, like Rome, humbles itself and is willing to come forward to be baptized. End quote. If we honor and serve Christ, if we cherish our freedom, if we love, love liberty for ourselves and for our children, then we have to call all men and nations by the gospel to humble themselves before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in so doing, we stand with the glorious promise of Scripture that assures us of something in Revelation 11, verse 5. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. In this task, in this calling, we have a privileged part to play in Christ's victory over all satanic power and authority because, as Daniel writes in Daniel 7, 27, the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Thank you. So, is there anyone that would like to start us off? Yes, go ahead. Joe, what did Paul mean when he said, honor the emperor in the context of his time, and what does it mean for us today? Good. Well, uh, Peter also talks about giving honor to whom honor is due. So Christians are never called to be uh, disrespectful to uh, established authorities. The way to achieve things in the Christian life certainly is not to be abusive to the prime minister or the judge or the magistrate, but to uh, give honor and due respect to those whom respect is due. This was the case. You see Paul 
in his own trials, actually. One of the best ways to examine that is to look at Paul on trial himself and how he dealt with uh, emperors and magistrates and kings like Festus and Agrippa and so forth. He was pretty forthright. In fact, some of them trembled on their thrones, the Bible said, their consciences being so troubled by the things that he said. So he didn't shy away from the truth, but he wasn't abusive. He wasn't disrespectful. And so I think that honor, honor for the emperor means in our own time that as Christians, uh, where uh, dissent and uh, civil disobedience is necessary, and I do believe that there comes a point where uh, by civil disobedience I mean that we do not acquiesce to demands that the state mate, states may make of us that contravene what God's law requires of us. Um, if it commands what God forbids, as John Stott puts it, uh, then civil disobedience becomes a Christian duty. But you can also be civilly disobedient whilst being respectful. The Apostle Peter was. you recall they were hauled in front of the Sanhedrin and told, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And what did they say? Respectfully, no. We can't do that. So they flogged them and sent them out. And they went on preaching in the name of Christ. So... Uh, we, we are to conduct ourselves in terms of the, def the defense of the faith, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.15, setting apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, we do so with respect, with honor, gentleness, and respect. And I think that's what it means to, to honor those in authority. After all, what Paul is saying in Romans 13 is that the powers are ordained. That is, God has established authority, and some authority is better than none. Thank you. Do you, uh, could you comment on Rush Dooney's theonomy project and reconstructionist movement yes. and where they fit into this project? Okay, that's a good question. For those of you who uh, haven't heard of theonomy, theonomy uh, means God's law. And there is, uh, was the late R.J. Rush Dooney was an Armenian, not an Arminian, he was reformed. He was an Armenian theologian, American, um, who was uh, very prolific in, in writing in the 50s and 60s and 70s, in particular in the United States, uh, whose work was extensively used by people like Francis Schaeffer, uh, and who was credited, although he would have uh, disliked this uh, commendation, with being the only think tank providing uh, ammunition to the Christian right in America. And that's made uh, this whole subject something of a political lightning rod. Um, he's unknown, this subject is generally unknown to Canadians because we didn't have the, uh, we haven't had the American style problem uh, and we haven't tended to frame things in terms of Christian right uh, over against the left. Um, but people like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and so forth drew, did draw heavily on Calcedon and uh, the moral majority during the time of President Reagan and so forth uh, was associated in some degree with this movement. Now, um, where I, and I am something of a specialist in this area, I don't know whether the questioner knew that because my master's thesis was on this subject uh, with the University of Manchester. Um, but uh, the issue really as it relates to this is that all, all social orders are theocracies. There's no such thing as a non-theocratic order. That is, every social order, as we've seen tonight, posits some source of sovereignty. 
So the only question is what kind of a theocracy you're actually going to live under. Is it going to be a humanistic one where man has usurped the prerogatives of God, or is it going to be under God? So theonomy just means God's law and uh, God's uh, uh, government. So um, whilst I think the terms now, theonomy and reconstruction, are pejorative terms, that is, they tend to be slung around as a kind of insult, which most people actually don't even know the meaning of these terms now, and they don't actually quite know what they're expressing or articulating. I think the essence of um, the theonomic critique of culture, in my opinion, was right on the money, that there is a crisis afoot in, it's more than afoot, we're in the middle of a gigantic crisis that actually they predicted back in the 50s and 60s of how Christianity is to cope with the paganizing of the state and the uh, religious pluralism of our social order. Now their answer was evangelism, personal obedience, regeneration uh, at the local level, the individual, the family, the church. And as the social order comes to recognize the lordship of Jesus again, then of course the state will recognize the lordship of Christ. The state is only the differentiated public. We, we don't even tend to think in these terms now about... Uh, when we use the term government, most people immediately, most modern Christians, think of the state. But if you asked our evangelical forebears what they meant by government, they meant the family, the government of the family. They meant the government of the church. How many of us actually think today of the church as a government? It is. It's ruled by elders. It's a government. It's a form of government. Uh, the school... All these different spheres were seen, and this um, theme comes up very strongly in the Dutch Reformed tradition, in Abraham Kuyper's sphere sovereignty, uh, that all of these different spheres are to be subject to God's word. But they're not the state. They're not the civil government. Civil government is only one part of government in the earth. And what's happened with modernity has been that when we now talk about government, we only think of the state. That's indicative of the fact that the state has swallowed all of these other spheres, licensing them, controlling them, regulating them, so that's all we think of now. Let me give you a really practical example. Fifty years ago, when uh, a person heard a woman screaming next door, in the house next door, they would have likely gone over and knocked on the door and interfered. What's going on? And uh, if the woman was being beaten by her husband, it wasn't immediately a police matter. The local community would have come over. In fact, this is, was common in the United States, even in the last century. The, 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 the Christian men of the neighborhood, the churches, would have gone over there and said, you, if you don't stop beating your, your wife, you're in for it. You're going to lose your job. You're going to be excommunicated from the church. And the worst case scenario is we might even take you behind a hedge and duff you over. Now, everything is a police matter. When there's a problem, if somebody's lying in the street, or oh, don't touch them, we might get sued. Don't give mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Call the representatives of the state. Right? Everything has become a state police matter. So you see that very practically how this has affected the way we relate. So um, theonomy means God's law to govern our lives as believers. And by regeneration and evangelism and faithful obedience to God, the community changes. Now, what happens when a community changes? 
we get the kind of laws and we get the kind of officials that we ask for. We wanted a liberal premier, apparently. And now we've got deputy ministers of education that we're hearing about in the press being charged with making child pornography. Right? We asked, we've asked for these kinds of people to shape the curriculum of our schools. So what happens when a social order embraces the gospel? Do you think we'll be asking for the same kind of leaders? Or will we be asking for the very things that our forebears in the early 20th century were saying about the Lord's Day? So it's actually very simple. That's all it means. That's how I would relate that subject to this question. Uh, Joel, could you comment on... Um, well, just let me give a bit of context first. In the Old Testament, Moses instructed the people to choose from among themselves representatives to judge between them. Mm -hmm. um, what, in your opinion, uh, is it about democracy that's failed us since in that Old Testament... Uh, precept, it's, it's sort of the people mm -hmm. voting for their representatives. Mm -hmm. What is it about democracy in the West that's failed us? That's a very good question as well. I think the problem is that people have seen democracy as a form of salvation. Um, demos, a democracy, very idea of it, uh, vox populi, vox dei, the voice of the people is the voice of God that somehow the people can be the voice of God. Now, in that sense, Christianity is not democratic. Because how many of you here as Christians would say, what is moral and true should be based upon the number of people that vote for it? Hmm. Right? I don't think any Christian who's read the Bible would say that the way we understand morality and law and truth is by majority vote. So in that sense, we cannot support the idea that democracy can replace God and His Word. Hmm. Even Winston Churchill said that democracy was just the best of a bad bunch of choices for a governing people. Hmm. And this is the myth of the West right now, is that we think we can export democracy and save the world. Hmm. And we can't. It's an abject failure. Hmm. Our foreign policy is a total failure in this regard, because democracy... Uh, is good, like a congregational church is good, when a congregation is healthy. When a congregation is unhealthy, mor morally, spiritually, and ethically, actually democracy means that everybody votes for their own interests and doesn't care about anybody else. And so what's happened, and there were uh, political philosophers who predicted this, is that eventually all that would happen is that the, as the vote expanded more and more broadly to the point where now criminals vote from prison and so on, that what would happen is that people would just vote for the most handouts. This is what uh, um, happened in the Greco-Roman world as well. So democracy in itself, representation in itself, doesn't protect people from the collapse of the social order. It cannot, because it's the morality and character of the people that protects us from the collapse of our social order. We will vote for and elect those representatives and officials that represent our character. And if we have bad character, we will have bad government. Mm. I mean, this isn't rocket science, is it? Mm. You see this in the life of a local church. If you've got bad characters in the life of a congregational church, well, then they will be taken up with voting each other out of various things and disquabbling over what color the toilet paper is going to be downstairs rather than evangelizing the community because mm. there's a lack of health and a lack of character amongst the people. 
Well, the same is true of democracy. Now, the Christian worldview is compatible with many different forms of government. I mean, Britain, the United Kingdom, uh, was not a pure democracy. Still isn't, technically. We had monarchy and parliament. And right up until the 20th century, <clears throat> ladies, don't stone me because I'm not, I'm not saying I support this, but women didn't even have the vote. Right? And uh, if you um, were uh, a derelict and you were in prison, you certainly didn't have the vote. So the Christian view was even in, the, in its understanding of democracy is that the responsible vote. The responsible, which is not saying that women were irresponsible, it was just that in that time, the woman was seen as voting through her husband. We can discuss that another time, not for tonight. Uh, but that was the idea of it, is that the family was voting. So the vote wasn't individualistic or atomistic, it was the family voted. And they voted through their father. That was the idea. So in one sense, some people would say that it was more aristocratic democracy. But the point is that democracy does not protect any social order. Voting doesn't protect anyone. Because you can vote that, uh, that um, homosexuality is, is virtue. Or that gay marriage should be established in the country. And what Christian can say that we can agree with that on the basis of God's word? These are the things that we've seen now. Uh, the Supreme Court, of course, these are unelected judges, so that's perhaps less relevant, but uh, has just struck down DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act. You probably read about that last week. So the institutions of democratic government do not protect people from social collapse. And so that is where, that's where the issue lies, I think, Trevor, is that it's to do with the character of a people. As we've been de-Christianized as a people, our character has become bad and our democracy and our social order is failing. Only 40% of people even bother to vote anyway, who are eligible to vote. So we don't even care about democracy. People don't even bother to want to use their freedom. They prefer to be slaves. Tim Keller is fond of saying about Christian believers that their sin prevents them from being as good as they ought to be and saying about people who are not believers that God's common grace prevents them from being as bad as they might, their orientation in life might cause them to be. Mm -hmm. Would it be also true of people in positions of governmental authority who really do have God's interests at heart that their sin would still prevent them from being able to establish a genuine utopia? Mm. And is it not also true that people whose orientation is diametrically opposed to God are still prevented by common grace from making things as bad as they possibly could? Sure. Could you comment on the, I guess, the role of sin and of common grace sure. in government? Thank you, Roger. Good question. First of all, um, Christianity denies and repudiates the idea that utopia is possible. Utopia is a humanistic uh, concept that believes man of his own power and strength can organize society in such a way so that all evils disappear. And that is actually the project of modern politics. It's utopian politics, and it believes that we can, by uh, economic redistribution, various regulations and rules about equality and so forth, can create by our fiat will and legislative will a utopian social order. Marxism is a utopian idea. The state will disappear, according to Marx, as people 
uh, realize their, uh, recreate themselves as gods. That's the Marxist concept. So Christianity, because of the fall, denies the possibility of utopia. And that's actually why God's law is necessary, as Calvin says, to restrain malefactors, to restrain evil. That's the function of the law. We have given law today a positive function, when actually biblical faith and law has a negative function. By positive, I mean we're using law to try and shape people's characters to make them into things that they aren't. Uh, when law's function in Scripture is actually to stop people being as evil as they could be. Now, um, prevenient grace uh, means that not everybody is Adolf Hitler. Not every sinner becomes a Stalin. Uh, Not every um, uh, uh, fallen individual becomes a Pol Pot. Uh, But that potential because of sin is in every man to to uh, sink. There's no place where sin won't take him. Hmm. So God's provenient grace means that he does not allow us to become what our sins would otherwise require. In other words, we're, God graciously makes us illogical hmm. and inconsistent hmm. in our application of what we profess to believe. Hmm. So mercifully, in our own society, although we have become humanistic, pagan, atheistic in our thinking, uh, our social order, because of the provenient grace of God, has not yet fully fallen uh, to pieces. That said, that does not mean we must not, and I think perhaps this is part of the question, uh, seek to, uh, uh, through once a person is regenerate and is seeking to be faithful to God, seek to establish godly states. Because there are several institutions. The family, the church, and the state are the three key ones in any social order. Now, we wouldn't say that just because a Christian is a sinner and a husband and wife are both sinners that they shouldn't get married and try and begin a godly family. We wouldn't say that because men are sinners and corrupt, even Christians who fall short of the glory of God, that therefore we shouldn't try and establish godly leadership in the church. In other words, we don't say because it's broken we should, that it could be misused, I should say, don't use it, right? Discipline, I get discipline wrong with my children sometimes. Doesn't mean I therefore say, because of my sins and my fallible discipline, I can't discipline my kids. If I didn't do that, well, the, the source of God's provenient grace in their lives would be removed, and then they become delinquents, and I'm responsible. The same is with the state. Yes, men are fallen, men are sinners, uh, and... Um, men and women in positions of authority, even who are regenerate and Christians, are going to make mistakes. Hmm. And some sinful desires are going to creep in. That doesn't mean we do not seek to honor God and serve God in the context of the state to the very best of our ability, recognizing that we will never create utopia. The fullness of the kingdom of God is not realized till the consummation of all things. Joe, I have a question. Sorry. Couldn't help myself. Um, you talked about a return to paganism and statism. You talked about the growth of, uh, well, the fact that our taxes are effectively entail that I'm working for the state half of the year. It's quite a powerful uh, idea. But what we don't see, and I'm asking you about this, we don't see a sacrificial system like we did in the pagan world or any idea of scapegoating or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Could you comment on that? Yeah. Okay, that, that's, that's a critical of critical importance. In the, uh, in the Roman world, in the Greco-Roman world, the way in which uh, the pagans dealt with the problem of social guilt 
this is, we're not the first culture to feel a sense of social guilt. And we're taught to feel a sense of guilt, personal guilt, social guilt. The, uh, the way the Greco-Roman world dealt with that is to have annual oblations and celebrations, one was called Saturnalia, uh, where there would be, um, in these oblations, there would be sacrifices. The arena was the place of sacrifice. That's how the Roman arena was viewed. It was essentially a place to, to expiate your sins onto those in the arena. And in Saturnalia, chaos was seen as the regenerating force in any social order. So in that context, a, co a man would be, a murderer would be let out of prison and allowed to be emperor for 24 hours. And there was a total overturning of every social and moral norm. Every kind of perversion was practiced. We've kind of glorified and romanticized the Greco-Roman world. It was a filthy place. And this is what they did annually, to purge the sins of the people. So when I quoted Lightheart towards the end there, uh, talking about the, the Christ being the final sacrifice, Constantine ended the bloodletting of the Roman arena, and in so doing, he ended the atonement rituals of paganism, saying that Christ is the only atonement for guilt. Now, as we have rejected the atonement of Christ steadily in our rejection of Christianity, uh, the problem of guilt doesn't disappear. How do we deal with the problem of our guilt previously as a Christian people? We came to the table of the Lord. And there, we know that our sins are dealt with and washed away. What happens to a people that weekly, I mean, if you're a Christian here, you know what a, what a ministry of grace it is when you come and you hear the word of God preached and you come to the table of the Lord and there you receive communion and you confess your sins and you receive forgiveness by God's covenant grace. Well, if you're not a believer, you don't have weekly or monthly access to the table of the Lord. What do you do with your guilt? How do you deal with it? Freud said that guilt was the cornerstone of all neuroses. He tried to explain it away scientifically. He didn't deal with it. He tried to just give an explanation for why we felt it. So what we've actually done is we've politicized, in terms of the state, because of statism, we've politicized guilt, and we speak about social justice. Now, what does social justice entail? If justice is social, not individual, then guilt is social not individual. If justice is social, guilt is social. And that means it must have a social cure, which means reparations and payments and redistribution and a general teaching that certain groups within a society are guilty. So let's get them for it. And right now, the guilty group in society is actually the one that I represent. The white Male, middle-class, Christian, so-called misogynist, who represents the oppressor class. This is the story. This is the social story that's told. I am guilty. It doesn't matter whether I'm a nice guy, a good parent, pay my taxes, treat people well, feed the poor. It doesn't matter what I do individually because guilt is social, mm. not individual. Mm. Because justice is social, not individual. So I am de facto guilty and must be punished. And that way society expiates its sins. Why do you think America has been paying reparations, guilt payments all over the world, millions and millions and millions into black holes of countries that oppose them? 
There's guilt payments. We deal with social guilt by now by social means. And that's what's happened. As the, and so we walk around feeling guilty about being Christian, about being white, about being middle class, about having privilege, about having a decent education, if we got one, which is unlikely. <laughs> I didn't. It's another subject. But we are taught, we are told this story of guilt, and the state will expiate our sins for us. And uh, that has become the way in which it's a kind of masochistic urge, self-punishment. That's why modern, the modern elite and the modern political order hates Christendom and everything about it. Hates the Christian nations, despise nothing good to say about the Western past. Nothing. Now, that's not to say what the Western past has been perfect. Far from it. But they've nothing good to say about it. Because it's a way of paying for our sense of social guilt because guilt is no longer about my standing with God and is no longer, and if my sin is not taken away by Christ, I've got to lay it somewhere. So we lay it on different classes of people. Thank you. Um, for me as a simple individual, it seems to be an overwhelming and a daunting um, subject as a Christian. And for my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren, we want to see a Christian worldview gradually evolving. We know it's taken so long to get to where we are today. And these past decades, it's been pretty rapid. So what I want to ask you is how can the everyday believing Christian in the home and in the street take active choices in order to that our great-grandchildren will be living again in a Christian civilization. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people say, including yourself, Christian schools and classical educations, which is wonderful. But at the same time, there's so many people who can't afford that. Mm -hmm. So if we're putting our children into a public school system that is toxic, then how can we bring about change? So just for the everyday, mm -hmm. hardworking, poor to middle class individual, mm -hmm. God-loving person, where do we start? That's a great question. And um, I think the answer is actually relatively simple. It's a rudimentary obedience to God's Word in every area of life. And by that, I mean that we first have to honor God in the family. And that means the instruction of our children in the home and the teaching of our children a Christian worldview. Now, this might sound rudimentary, but the, fact, the simple fact is now it isn't. People don't catechize their children. They don't teach them in the home. They don't instruct them in the faith. Uh, teaching catechism is seen to be some sort of kind of uh, punishment for uh, bad behavior or something, uh, rather than something that's instilling uh, the foundations into our church. So I, we can start with the family. And then the church. The church needs to, very simply, the average Christian person can tithe. Now, that is not to enrich the church. See, one of the reasons why we've seen the collapse of a Christian social order is that Christians used to pay 
for health, welfare, and education. The church used to fund it all through the tithe. Well, in North America, you add up all the tithes, it amounts to about 2% of somebody's income, when it should be actually more like 15% if you add the tithes together. Now, that tithe in Christendom paid for hospitals. People have got, uh, um, you know, if people are struggling with what's happening with um, the control of uh, medicine today in our culture, and the way that euthanasia is now being introduced, the bill from Quebec and all these things, well, we used to, to serve our nation, our community, the church served, with health and welfare. We were the welfare. There was no such thing as the welfare state in the 19th century. We were the welfare. We provided welfare. And it was personal, not bureaucratic. Uh, and because of that, people weren't dealing with faceless bureaucracies. They were dealing with individual people that cared for them and helped them. Mm. So it starts actually with evangelism, with the preaching of the gospel, with faithfulness in our individual lives to all of God's Word, not just talking about the authority of Scripture in the abstract, but the material authority of God's Word, where we actually put it into practice. We can teach our children in the home. We can support Christian education. And what we're seeking to do with the Christian school, knowing that this is finances are a problem, is to provide bursaries and scholarships. And this is what we are appealing to wealthy Christians to do, so that people who can't afford a Christian education can get one. Mm. We can provide welfare, which is what we're doing with Safe Families to Westminster as one example. There's a concrete welfare project to rescue children and families on the verge of some form of collapse, abuse, neglect. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> we can provide diaconal care in the life of the church for our own people. The only way to shrink the state is to actually do the things that the state has taken away from the church, which in part, to be fair, is because the church steadily retreated from and abandoned them. And, and some form of social financing does need to be provided. I'm not saying withdraw the welfare state like that and let everybody fall through the cracks. The church used to provide it. You know, there was a study done in the U.S. a few years ago that found that if every church in America, not every Christian, if every church in America supported one welfare family, the welfare state would cease to exist. Like that. So... The way, Jesus put it this way, he says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And if we give to God what belongs to God, Caesar suddenly gets very small because mm -hmm. God is getting his due. Mm -hmm. So I think faithfulness, teaching, education, welfare, health, these are the key areas where we Christians in a concrete and immediate way can start to restore our mandate. I have to answer these quickly. Yeah, uh, excellent uh, presentation, Joe. Thank you very much. Uh, I mean, the, the church clearly has a lot of challenges right now. I mean, it seems to me one of the major challenges, and no less today, has been from Islam. And it's been said that it's on the march. It's been on the march for centuries, and it's on the march here, next door. Yeah, it's it's in it is in the state right now, and the agenda, in my reading, hasn't changed. How are we to cope, or what are we to do with this challenge today? Sure. Well, Islam has made the inroads it has because of the vacuum left by the abandonment of Christianity. So Islam, by force of arms, was unable to make any inroads in Christendom for centuries. 
Now it's making inroads by babies. And that's one of the reasons, that's another thing that we can do, Orla, uh, as a Christian <laughs> church, is actually to get married and have babies. It's a very simple thing, but our culture has, our Western culture has rejected the notion of family, rejected the notion of children. Children are a pain, they're a, they're a hassle, and when we do have them very often, they're a sort of ornament, one child in the back of a six-seat SUV uh, you know, in downtown Toronto. And that kind of a mentality of children as ornamental and convenient for my lifestyle choice has meant that just in one very simple area, demography, Islam has made huge inroads. Islam is status to the core. It's, uh, it, um, this is often overlooked by people. So it's also socialistic. And uh, it, 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 it doesn't allow for diversity or dissent of any kind. That's the nature of Sharia. And so the West is suddenly realizing that throwing open the doors, which was a deliberate policy, in fact, in England of the British government, by their own confession last week, Lord Mandelson, Peter Mandelson said that we rubbed the right's nose in diversity. They, went, they sent search parties out into Europe to recruit Muslims to move to England uh, to try and create... The, uh, this idea of to, say to, be, to be able to say to people, well, we live in a multicultural, multi-religious society, therefore we can't privilege Christianity. Well, now they're getting a taste of what it means to live in an Islamic context where honor killings are going on up and down the country. Where people, young men, are being butchered in the streets with machetes in broad daylight, if you read that a few weeks ago. And this is because of the vacuum left by the Christian faith. So if we want to respond to Islam, the key first is to love the Muslim and evangelize him. That Islam is an ideology. The Muslim is, a, is an ordinary human being who needs Christ. So we need to evangelize Muslims. Then we need to have children and have families. And we need to stop griping about everybody else and what they're all doing and take our responsibility seriously. Islam has the seeds of its own destruction built into it. It always stagnates. It never goes anywhere. And because Islam has stagnated in the Islamic world, uh, and, only, and the only Islamic countries that were enriched were because of the Western purchasing power for oil, uh, Islam is divided, it, they're at war with each other constantly, it has the seeds of its own destruction built into it, it is, it is an impossible social order. Islam is not the problem. The weakness of Christianity is the problem. So if we build a strong faith, we won't have a problem with Islam. And actually, Muslims will be attracted to the Christian faith. Last one. Greg. Um, it struck me when you're talking about theocracy and using words, I think, that uh, would be quite striking to the average person. Um, it struck me that the Reformation principle of sola scriptura is rather significant for... Uh, explaining how we as Protestant or Christians and not Catholic, Roman Catholic Christians would conceive of the relationship between the state and the church. And I was wondering if you might comment on that. Sure. Thank you, Greg. So very briefly, yes. Um, the, uh, the tendency uh, in both the Eastern church, the, the, the Eastern Patriarch, and in later in the Western church through the Pope, who is often called the Vicar of Christ. And of course, the Vatican is both a state and a church. So they tended to collapse this distinction and say that in some way or another, 
You've either got a direct representative of God in the Pope or you've got some sort of incarnation of the kingdom of God in the church itself. And uh, this is a mistake. There's no question about it. In, in that sense, a part of Christendom was operating under a mistaken understanding of the relationship between church and state. So the ideal Pope for a number of centuries was the Pope riding on the back of a horse, lance in his hand, riding down God's pagan enemies. And that is not obviously the biblical image of evangelism and the preaching of the gospel and so on, uh, where freedom flourishes. So we don't, we can, when we talk about Christendom, we don't mean that we're going to embrace all the mistakes of Christendom past. Uh, I think that as we look to the Reformation and the, uh, the Protestant city-states and their independence, as we look to uh, England and Scotland and uh, New England and the Americas, I think we have better examples, better models, not that they were perfect, but better models to pursue in terms of the relationship between, as I've outlined today, church and state, these different spheres of authority that are to come under the Word of God. And, you know, we have some pretty good examples. They may not have lasted all that long, but we have some pretty good examples of this. Uh, we have um, uh, Calvin's Geneva. We have uh, Zwingli's Zurich. Uh, we have Busser's Strasbourg. We have Knox's Scotland. We have Cromwell's England. Uh, we have uh, the New England Puritans. We have early colonial and, con and early constitutional America. We have the Dutch reform tradition, Abraham Kuyper, who served as Dutch prime minister. Uh, none of them were perfect. We shouldn't idealize or romanticize any of those eras, but they modeled, I think, a better relationship than the one which we see within the Eastern Church and the one which the Roman Church has tended to uh, model for us. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.